Looking to create wealth and income through high cash-flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large 100-plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. I'm super excited about our podcast today because we get to interview one of my favorite people in the world and we get to do deep dive today. So before we get started get a little introduction here. You've probably seen Sam Whitaker on my social media, as well as other things, including some of our videos online. And that is because Sam is one of my partners in our business, Bitterroot. So we have worked together for a long time and Sam helped us do everything from kind of the start when we got started and we had to figure out how to make this thing work. And that required a lot of long days, particularly because our other partner and I still ran our other businesses. And so that left Sam a lot to figure out and work some hard problems. He's officially the CFO, but as all of the entrepreneurs out there know, and anyone starting businesses, that really means that, you know, that's his designation, his title. But when you're starting up a business, you are whatever comes across your desk. Um, And that is kind of the role, you know, that me and Sam have been in for a long time where it has just been a constant switch and you, you just get done whatever needs to be get, get done at that time. We've stabilized a lot since, since that time. But what I want to focus on and have Sam talk with you today is one of the pivotal parts that Sam plays within our organization is the underwriting of the assets. And uh, finding. So when I'm I'm out trying to dig up deals 24-7, and then once we get deals up to a place where we think they'd, they'll do good, me and Sam sit down and Sam does a deep dive into the numbers. And then we work on the financing and find out which, which deals are best for us because not all deals are. So I'm really excited. This is going to give you a very in-depth look on which deals are appropriate, how we find opportunities, opportunities and uh, more of an in-luck of our organization. So with that, Sam, welcome. Thank you. Super excited. We have actually been on a hiatus for the last little while of purchasing facilities, but we've just kind of had a few that have been running across our desk and we're, we're, we're getting to the point where we may be looking at them. So why don't we kind of go through and talk about generally, first of all, how we find deals. But I think specifically from you on the financial point is how do we know when a good deal is a good deal? Because I think that's what you know a lot of people have a hard time with. Sure. Well, you know, you said that we've had quite the hiatus, and I think that that's a lot because you know when we get these deals that come across, I end up killing them because it just doesn't financially work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so True. you have to really understand, I think, the asset and whatever you're purchasing. I mean, this goes from any sort of asset that you're kind of buying, anything that's you know revenue generating. You have to understand the fundamentals of the business, meaning 
you know, you got to know the revenue sources. You have to know what you can do with those revenue sources. You have to project expenses. You have to understand how those expenses will change with how somebody's running it right now versus how you'll run it. And that's a huge part of when we do the underwriting. That's a huge part of what I do. Is yeah, all. it's just not the it's just not the line item like what the revenue is or the expenses. It's why are they where they're at and what are the what are the drivers like what makes them those numbers and how are those being affected yeah and truthfully there's a lot of expenses that i've found in the business environment that you know we get this pnl these historicals from from whatever owner it is and you know whether they're high or low in a lot of cases you just have to look at it as wow this is a general idea, but you can never go off of what somebody else gives you. So in a lot of cases, you know, I'll look at at these as a reference point. I mean, there's certain staples like property taxes and real estate, you know, that's that's very predictable and you'll know what will happen there, at least in the short term and the long term, you know, that's anyone's guess, whatever a politician decides. But, you know, you have those, you have these P&Ls and I just sometimes just end up throwing them out because I know that's not how we're going to operate an asset. I mean, in some cases, you know, people are putting very few things through on expense lines to uh, try to make the asset itself appear better than it is. Sometimes people will load for bear because, you know, the tax situation requires that they put it through an individual entity. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into P&Ls and, you know, you got to think that on any given day, we can do thousands of transactions on one business that there's going to be some variance in whatever, you know, comes out as being what what how you're going to operate any individual asset. I like to think of it as it doesn't matter so much what they're doing, but we can do. Yeah, and that's and that's a huge huge part about how I end up underwriting our assets is because I have a good understanding. We've been doing this for a long time. I have a good understanding of what we're going to spend, how we're going to spend it. And we also have a pretty firm grasp on what we're going to do with the revenue. That the revenue piece is uh, everybody can know, you know, what I'm going to spend. That's pretty easy, you know, because you can always stop spending. (laughs) But the revenue side is a much more difficult one to come up with because it's very market driven. There's also some business aspects on, you know, ancillary lines that you do have a lot more control over. But at the end of the day, the primary product, you know, on a lot of these is our rent. And that can change from day to day based on whatever the demand is. And uh, it can be difficult to know exactly where you're going to hit in real estate when you're dealing with a self-storage asset that's very market-driven. You know, these aren't long-term leases. They're month-to-month. People can do long-term leases in the self-storage industry. There's nothing stopping it, but it's not the the standard standard by any means. It's a month-to-month type of business. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we could have all of our tenants move out at the end of the month and... We just have to accept that because <laughs> yep. yep. there's nothing keeping them there. Before we get in, because this is a whole subject I want I want to dive into is, I guess, projections and, and how we look at projecting out revenues over a given time, let's say. But before that, you mentioned kind of when we go through and we acquire, you mentioned ways that the previous owner will 
I guess, the finances that they'll give. And we've seen all the games, right? So how do owners, or let's just say brokers, what are the games that they play to manipulate the price in commercial real estate? And how does that work when dealing with like a cap rate, for example? Sure. Well, the general thing is uh, brokers, what they'll typically do is pull some national averages of and they'll they have many different sources that they can pull those from but uh, they'll pull some kind of national average apply that to the you know revenue items they'll have the expenses be a certain percentage of revenue and then package it up and send it on now when you get further in the process of buying an asset you'll get firm historicals but the advertisement that they put in you know this property is making this amount of money it's really a bunch of garbage. I mean, it yeah. it can be manipulated. It can be whatever they want the property to be, whatever they want to sell it for. They can really put it in the P&L. Now, I do have a lot of respect for certain brokers, especially those that try as hard as they can to make the P&L true. But having said that, if there's a broker that comes along that I don't know, I'm usually going to be very suspicious at what the numbers are until I get into it, which is a good thing for me to do because that's my job is to underwrite the assets. So I'm very skeptical about everybody. Two, though, it's important to note, we've received deals and I've had deals that broker sent me. They're saying, this is what the numbers are, and this is what the numbers are going to be in five years. And it's the first storage deal they've ever even sold. I mean, the, even the basics aren't correct, but yet they're presenting it as if it's true. And for somebody just getting started, you know, you need to be aware that the source of that data is more important than what they're actually presenting. And the truth is, is on those projection-wise, I've never seen an accurate one. Never. It's never happened. And you can hardly blame the the brokers on that. I mean, who has the crystal ball? Yeah. You know, but... And it's always going to be as favorable as possible. Yeah. yeah performance, <laughs> you know, if it, anyone that's ever done any dealings with us, we, we it, they know immediately. We're like, don't even say performa because we don't care. I'm not... Bi- we don't we don't believe. And now, let, let's clarify that for anyone that doesn't understand. When always when you get a broker gives you a deal, they have what's called actual and performa. Well, they should. Lots of times they just present the performa. This is a common trend that happens. What that means is what the asset would do if the world were perfect and exactly how everybody wanted it to be. And lots of times they will actually price the asset based upon performa. That's obviously a huge problem. And one that needs to be identified clearly. So for us, when we're looking at it, you know, we always talk to brokers. So we we don't even look at performance. Don't talk about it. It doesn't matter. Any any financier worth their salt won't look at a pro forma given from an agent. You know, it's and that's where it really matters on purchasing an asset is, you know, when you underwrite the properties, you are generally, I mean, most people are going to be going out and getting a loan and finance the project. And then this, that is going to be financed by some very, very, very strict underwriters that live in a basement at your local bank. Then all they do is dig through these numbers and they, and they're going off the worst, <laughs> the worst picture, not the best. Yeah, exactly. They, <laughs> they do the exact opposite. And so what you find is there's a very different meaning between a pro forma 
that an agent or broker will give you and a pro forma, what it means by a bank. A pro forma by the bank really means these are solid numbers that you're expecting and projecting. There are their projections. So when the bank says, give me a pro forma, they're asking, give me your projections on what you'll do on this project. And two, it's important to know that people get frustrated with banks because they're like, I can't get a deal done with the bank because I haven't done a deal. How am I supposed to do it? And that exact right there, that is why. Banks want existing operators that have track records because you forget that the bank... So lots of people, I think, when you think about investing, you you think you're going to buy an asset and... When, you, when you've never done this, and that it's just going to perform a certain way, and that the banks somehow know this, right? And that that everybody has an idea what it is. And the, the fact is that banks don't. They re- rely very highly on the numbers that we give them and how that works. And I think a perfect example of that is our facility that we bought at auction. Can you tell us kind of how that went down and what made the big difference and why 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 we ended up owning that? I think I would have to add a little bit to what you just said though on the bank's reliance. What they truly rely on is the appraiser. Yeah. Which <laughs> and and that and so you have to get into a position with the appraiser when they're appraising the property that you can give them legitimate argument. I mean appraisers <laughs> AJ laughed because we do have some issues with appraisers too, but they do their job is to do the real hard work as far as a deep dive into the numbers. The underwriters on the loans, once they get those numbers from the appraiser and they get that appraisal, they'll plug it into their financial models and work it that way. But if you're talking granular type of numbers, it's the appraisers that really do that. And at the Boise location that AJ's talking about, the auction one, the sellers, which was the state of Idaho, appraised that property and it appraised it some catastrophically low number because of the way it had been operating before and there was no there was no projections there was nothing given on what the property could do in the future is based purely on historical numbers and 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 two also it's important to remember that and and, and Sam touched on this before so before he goes any further I really want to bring this in accounting is a weird world and it seems like it's more just like magically made up things than not. And it's surprising how much political factors equal out prices in these situations. Perfect example is this auction where it's amazing how low the city came in at a number to try to make sure that it works out in their favor. And I'm sure that the appraiser just happened to come out with exactly what the state of Idaho wanted them to. Well, and with that one, it was they had pulled more comparable on that than I have ever seen in an appraisal, mainly because (laughs) they knew that the price was ridiculous. They wanted to prove in the appraiser way that that price was okay. So they pulled from many, many places that aren't even in Idaho. Which hold no water. They mean nothing. Yeah, they don't mean anything. But yeah, it it does. That one was a very political thing. But how can you avoid that when it's the the state? state. (laughs) And that's why they had to sell it. Yeah, exactly. The politics were the whole reason that thing got sold anyway. But and another thing I should just add real quick, it was very artificially low because of a problem I mentioned earlier with property taxes. 
state governments don't have to pay those. Mm-hmm. So it really Cash adjusted how wonderful. the yeah, it really adjusted how the financials looked on that property. But anyway, we knew that we were going to have to have our own appraisal done because we knew that the price of that asset was much higher. I think everybody knew that, that it was much higher than what it had appraised for. And so the key was to get our financing partners involved in that. And again, you have to talk with the appraisers and make the appraiser feel comfortable about what you're doing, which we had ample evidence on that because of our existing properties in the area. We could t- we knew exactly what that facility would do. And Lo and behold, almost three years later, it's done exactly what we thought it would. And our financial partner very much trusted us on that. Even when they got the appraisal and the appraisal worked, you know, they still have to go through their own underwriting process. And, you know, they they were okay with it because, you know, we knew what we were doing. So, so we, because that appraisal came in and we came in, I mean, we were, what, a million over it? Like it was a big. It was larger than that. It was yeah. larger than that. Yeah, it was whatever it was, 1.3, 1.5 over. It was a big number. And no one else in that room was prepared for that. No. No one else had even gotten another appraisal done. And two, it's important to know who was in the room. There were REITs and some of the biggest self-storage operators in the nation that were sitting in that room. And a lot of those, though, they couldn't bid the price that you know we bid on that property because they didn't understand it. Exactly. I mean, you and I both know there were people in that room that surely understood the Boise market. Oh, yes. <laughs> so so they could have gone higher, but they just, for some reason, decided not to. But there were national players in there that for sure did not, were not prepared for how that asset would look and sell. And you can use this. So I, I think, you know, we're talking, obviously, most people listen, this is a larger asset, you may be thinking, but the the principles in this, though, I love this example, because it shows how you can take advantage of market inefficiencies. And two, this is you taking advantage of a market inefficiency, which involved governments, which involved REITs, which involved the largest players. And we were still able to capitalize on that and take advantage of this opportunity, principally because our underwriting was done so well, and we were able to show that value to others. And either other people hadn't done that. Well, we know other people hadn't done. No one had gone and gotten another appraisal. So nobody else had gotten financial partners on. And by the time that we had gotten to the upper end of the bidding process, everybody was gone and they passed. I think they were wondering why we were still in it. And if we're being totally honest, we were shocked when we won it because we thought, surely there's a lot of smart people here. They're going to know, they have to know that this is like half of what it would be in a normal market situation, the value. And they didn't, or they didn't come prepared. Whatever the reason was, it was shocking. We got it and we were just like, did no one else know? Yeah, we were truly shocked at that one because that was, uh, that number was well within our number to make it work. Oh, well um, within. And two, t- w- when you say within your number to w- make it work, you guys got to understand something here. Most people think what we think takes to work is ridiculous. I mean, we're looking <laughs> at like a 20 plus percent cash on cash return. Yeah. So for <laughs> us, when we made it work, we're looking around at like the REITs going, what What are you guys missing? Because we need a home run before we're going to do something where these guys, they need like a good solid 9% return. And they missed 
this huge upside in in value and it's because they didn't underwrite it it's because they didn't get granular about those numbers and then too they didn't get their financial partners on board i mean really it was and then yeah tell them what happened with the asset within six months well within six months we had increased the revenue on that 60 percent it was it was a i don't know if we'll ever have a deal (laughs) it was that within six months within six months millions do that it was absolutely millions we we did really well on that yeah and we're incredibly fortunate for that all of the time and effort that we took on that property paid off. And I think that you brought up probably the biggest point there is that, you know, when you have an asset that a potential asset that meets exactly what you need and exactly your skill level, if you put in the hard work and work hard and get that, then it just is phenomenal. It works out amazing for you. But the getting that is is the really hard trick in how we you know, got this Boise asset because it was within our wheelhouse. If that had been in Salt Lake City, there's no way we could have done we, what we did. No, absolutely not. Um, we wouldn't have got it. it you know, or anywhere. It yeah. was, it, there's, if we did not have firm, hard numbers in, because we have an asset that's what, five minute drive down the yeah, road? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we knew exactly, exactly. what that's, this sub-market does. Yep. And if we had not had that, it, the asset would have meant a lot less to us yes. if it was in a different place. The fact that we could get so granular, the fact that we took the time to do that, it paid off. I mean, when I think about what we did on underwriting that asset, it makes me think of, you know, in our own small, teeny tiny way, like what George Soros did with the pound. After he had taken the pound for quite a ride, mm-hmm. <laughs> he he said that they have never in their lifetime done underwriting and knew exactly what was going to happen as when George Soros went after the pound. And that's the way I felt on our Boise property. We had never done that level of underwriting and knew exactly what was going to happen as well we did on that one. Even assets that we had bought two months earlier, we did not do that level that we did with this one. And one of the major reasons I think we did the underwriting and it drove us to the underwriting is we didn't know what the price was Yeah, because it was an auction. So it forced us, it forced us and to the the weeks leading up to it were a little, I I would think chaotic. We would come up with a number and it was like, we're never going to get this. And then it would be like, I'd be like running out of Sam's office and back in and we'd play with office. And then two days later, it would change complete. And we'd come up with another number and Sam would be like, I know, well, you got to look at this. And it was, it was like this revision and revision and this stripping down of information and markets and overlapping our assets with it. And it, looking at the motives, why it was being priced, who's pricing it, who's coming to the auction. I mean, it really well. And and I can I just interrupt? I mean, I think that we knew the level of competition that was going to exist on that. I think that's what you're saying. Yes. Because one of the biggest commercial brokerages in Boise, you know, very smart people at this brokerage, they know what they're doing. They advertise this thing like I have never seen a property advertised yeah. before. There's people from all over, tons of people from Southern yeah, California. They did amazing. They did kidding. a really good job marketing. They this. did a really good job with it. So we knew that there was going to be a huge competition and there was. In the opening parts of the bidding process on that property, you'd say there's at least 20, 20 bidders. At least. And, you know, and this was the asset that everybody was going after yeah. in this auction. And there were big assets that were sold at the same auction because the state was offloaded all of their properties. But that was the one that generated Every, the most interest. That's why everybody was there. Yep. And 
and, and two, it, like Sam said, after we purchased it, not only did it play like we thought, it was virtually immediate. We already had our game plan. We already knew exactly what it's doing. And then it purchased it because in investing and everything in, in life is obviously the more you know, the less risk there is. And with that asset, we had, we just knew every in and out. We had gone to the property more than any other person. We had talked with managers. I mean, we had just limited so much of the risk down that where we came up with a price was exactly what it should have been. Well, and, and to tell you, you know, how much we did visit that property was we got to know the manager so well <laughs> that we promoted her after to a VP. I mean, we had the inside track on that. Yep. And she's now part of our organization. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really interesting when you're looking at underwriting. I have a saying, I, I do not let banks tell me what I can afford and I do not let realtors tell me what something's worth. And... Underwriting is how you get to valuation. It's how you get to the worth, right? And it's only through the underwriting process with investments, uh, real estate assets, that you, you can find the the value in the market, right? That's where you find the inefficiencies. And so we look at tons of deals. And some of them we know right off the bat, doesn't even matter. I, I'd say 90% of the deals that come across our desk, we don't even take more than two seconds, yeah. Because it's just thrown in the trash. Then there's 10%. And that's all on-market deals. And those are all on-market deals. That's another <laughs> thing that should be said. We've never bought an on-market deal. Unless Boise's the only one. and, and an Yeah, auction. I guess if that was an auction. Yeah. Never an on-market, though, priced out you know, yeah. facility. So yeah, you're right, though. I guess that would be the closest thing to an on-market deal, is that is that facility, which is interesting. Um, but other than that, we've never bought an on-market deal. And one of the reasons being is this idea that the marketplace values it. Sam and I, that does not that does not jive with our philosophical approach to business or investing, and I don't believe it should anyone's, because I when you're dealing with revenue based assets, the revenue drives the value, and the and the things that affect the revenue affect the future value of it, not the whims of the marketplace. And if you buy off the whims of the marketplace, that's when you get in trouble. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think I want to explain a little bit on what you said that, you know, you never let realtors tell you what something's worth. And again, there is, you know, a little asterisk that I'm going to put here that there's certain brokers and realtors that we have one that we love. Yeah. That are amazing. It's amazing. We're not going to tell anybody his name because he's <laughs> ours, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. We have a few that we, uh, there's not just him. Yeah. It's not just him. There's a few. There's yeah. There's a few that we love. Yes. But Generally, I mean, especially if you're dealing with uh, market, you know, these uh, people that are marketing the facilities and in other states that are totally out of your network, what do they care that you come in and buy this? They don't care. They're like, yeah, go ahead and pay this amount. I'm going to get a giant fee on it. And it's not going to affect me because the likelihood that you'll see them again in another transaction is minuscule. Minuscule. So you can't buy on market because you know that you're buying far above. And and in today's market right oh. now, not only is the price on market crazy that they start at, but they get bid. 
bid up by the funds right now that are going out and buying these properties. So if you're buying on market, I mean, you're just overpaying so much, especially if you're an individual. Yes. I don't know how anyone can make it work. No. We have significant areas where we have economies of scale that we can leverage. And in those areas, I wouldn't consider buying an on-market no. place because it, it just would not pencil right. Yeah. And honestly, if we brought that to our financial partners and said, hey, this is a great deal, I think that they would start questioning I agree. us. <laughs> I, I think we would start to lose favor with them because one of the reasons they want us to buy and they literally ask us, they say, please go buy more, is because of the trust. They know that we can better underwrite and know these assets. No, too, we're, we're talking about this, right? But when we started out, it was not this way. <laughs> no, it wasn't. In, in fact, some of the purchases that we bought at first, we were really worried about because they seemed like we were overpaying or whatnot. Looking back on it, it's almost laughable because they were such good deals. We were hyper conservative. <laughs> we were hyper conservative. <laughs> but the reason we were hyper conservative was because we were hyper aware of what we didn't know. Yeah. And I think that you need to have that. And I think that that's very important because when you underwrite an asset, you are underwriting it from your perspective. So you have to underwrite it and you have to embed risk. Well, the more you don't know, the more that risk piles up. So we talked about the Boise we got to the valuation because we tore down risk. It's like tearing down the future and seeing what the future looks like. When we first started, we couldn't see what the next month looked like because we didn't know. Yeah, yeah everybody has to start. And yeah. so we went hyper conservative and we bought assets that we could in areas that we could compete and we learned. And it's kind of funny because if you think about the Kmart, right? So our Reno Kmart deal, we could not have even done that deal two years prior. No. We, we couldn't have done it. Yeah. We were not in a place where we had the ability or know how to get there. So I think a lot of people look at it and they're like, oh, I want to do that. And we, and we see these people. We see these people get in the industry. They get a bunch of people together and they go buy an on-market deal or something. And they don't even know the risk they're walking into. It's one of the reasons I'm a large proponent of starting small. It's what we did. And we learned because that's how we learned value. Yeah. Right? And I don't know what you've said as far as when we started. And when we got into storage in a big way was a decade after, after. we had tested. Yes. And we've talked about this a lot that, you know, it's one of the things that I think was the best things that we did. We were in little teeny towns and it was like nowhere land. I often use the example of Bonners Ferry, Idaho, which nobody knows. And we understood the basics. That led us to say, okay, we, we can be little bigger boys now. Let's try something more midsize, right? We got proficient in that. Then we moved up. Well, and the funny part that I just want to bring up about that is, you know, on those early deals, we we didn't make a lot of money. No. Oh, oh no. Until the one that we held in you know, yeah. Bonner's Ferry yes. that we held until after we started in our super big way, that one paid off big that one time. paid off big. <laughs> we 1031 exchanged that one into another more mid-sized one in a bigger market, then immediately turned around and sold that for a million more. And we put that into another facility at which if you were looking at the my Instagram, AJ Osborne, I, was, I just put up videos 
I'll put them on my storyboard so if anybody wants to see, but we're actually expanding that one now. So what started out as like an $800,000 asset will now be, I don't know, an eight to $10 million asset. Yeah. And it's interesting that process because that process had more to do with us and our learning ability. I mean, we were just joking about this today. You got to understand when me and Sam started, we had a few people, I think we had Heather. Yeah. Yeah. And then CJ came a little after that. Uh, no, Heather didn't. Come. CJ Six was months. the first. So that's right. And then Heather came in later. So I had a friend that I, I knew he was good because we played Nintendo together at night while our <laughs> wife slept. Um, I, I was young and we would, and I'd hang out with him. But we were always talking about different business stuff. And I and I just asked him what he what he was doing. And he was managing all of these franchise locations, right? And so when we started uh, our business, one of the things that we had a very firm belief and desire to do was we wanted it to act like a franchise so we could just simply repeat it and everything. So we brought him in to help us create more like a franchise system. But it, when we started out, it was just this empty room. We're sitting and we were just joking about today. It was one day Sam came in. And I just got like post-it notes all over the walls of the office where we're writing policies and procedures. I mean, we were just trying to figure the stuff out. And it was, I mean, we were, yeah, we were just figuring it out. And it took a while until where now we can really underwrite in confidence to much larger assets and deals. And it, it doesn't feel risky at all because it's not. It's we understand, we know, and we can underwrite it safe enough to where we don't need to worry. Yeah. And I think too, a huge part about what's so far been the success of our company is that out of the partners, no one of us could have done this by ourselves. No, it you know, would have been impossible. We had to have each other and we had to have good people with us. And it just, if I were to go back and look at what this would become, I, I would have never fathomed no, what we all. would have done here. No, not at all. And, and I think like you just talked about CJ, I mean, I think about the branding wise, if we hadn't had him at that time, it would have sucked. It would have sucked. <laughs> I mean, he did a good job yeah. with the branding and yes. the feel that we yep. like at our facilities, which is a funny thing to say about a storage facility, wanting a good feel in it. And that's what we've gone after because it's, it's important for customers to feel like they're getting a good deal. And that, and that's, I think, is something that we spent a lot of time and yeah. a lot of post-it notes on. And two, I think it's important. One of the reasons that, you know, and, and I talk about this a lot when you're dealing with partners, we are not a family business, but we're family. So it's, it's me, Sam is my brother-in-law for all those that uh, didn't know. He married my sister, Olivia, and then my dad. So it was us three. And we all have the exact same goals. We're very unified in our purpose. And I think that makes a big difference. Although we were unified in our purpose, but we were very different in our approach. And that created a great system to where we had everything that we needed from operations, financing, and to sales. So we could go out, get the deals, and all everyone that knows me, I'm a sales guy, I run sales organizations, and I love deals. I love finding them. I love going in and running around and finding the opportunity. That's just fun for me. And when we were starting and out- I'd rather set myself on fire <laughs> than do that. <laughs> and when we were starting out and going through this process, it really was. It was, we had to have deal flow. We needed to get it done. We needed the backing too. We also needed uh, 
uh, the operational side because we didn't. And this, it, this, it's not like, you know, when you look at the, I think the growth of any business at all, whether we're talking about the brokerage firm, whether we're talking about online businesses, whether we're talking about the investment strategy, any of those things that we're actively engaged on a day to day basis doing, you have the partners that need to be all on board. You need to have that long, long-term goal because it takes a long time and it's it's not easy. But as long as I think you're unified, it's it's okay, right? You, we and that was really easy for us. It was that was never hard, and I think that it allowed us that to we get worked through. at the brokerage firm together. For exactly, <laughs> it helped that we already had had um, experience working together. We 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 uh, all knew each other and knew our skills. So I think that that's really really important. Now, and this is obviously not has anything to do with underwriting. This is on the business setup and uh, you know partners, which is almost more important than the deals. It, it really is. I, I mean, you know, I have a I have a friend and she does multifamily investing. And, you know, we were just going over the horror stories of a partnership she had, and it was with her mentor. And it came, it was someone that she never thought it would come from. And it was their first time working together. Well, me and my father have worked together since I was, you know, 15 years old going out doing or 14 years old going out doing benefit enrollment meetings in the insurance side together and then working through me and him doing mergers and acquisitions. And then immediately after Sam got married, he came in and started helping us with the cleaning up a lot of our financing that needed help. So we had this work history and then we also had these common goals. And I think when you're trying to build something big, it cannot be founded on short term thinking. And two, for us, I think there was a bigger meaning. We were transitioning from an earned income to try to create wealth and try to create passive income. And that was really the goal. I mean, that was really what we were trying to do. We were trying to move and do this massive life shift. And so it was a higher arching goal than just simply Oh, let's let's make some money, yeah. right? Well, and you have to have your eye on the prize, you know, and where you eventually want to go, you know, with your goals. And, you know, that's not to say that it's been all rosy the whole time. No. I mean, it's no, uh, you have to uh, with the partnership that that's really sad about your friend, you know, the yeah. with your mentor. I mean, it's and that's the key part is you have to find people that you can work with and it very importantly that you respect. And then you have to be able to disagree, but come to a solution, you know? And and AJ will attest to this. There's been times where he's lost. There's been times that I have lost on any given issue. Mm, times that Ron's lost. Yeah, and times that Ron's lost. But mm. everybody understands that we're wanting to do what's best for the organization. Yeah. And they understand that we all have the goal of wanting to make money. Yeah. It, you know, that was an interesting thing that starting early on and when I first started working with my father and we were trying to accomplish all these goals and everything, that was always very clear. Like, we're not always going to agree. That's fine. The goal is what we're trying to achieve. And you do have to be able to to give, right? I mean, you have to say, all right, listen, I'm going to move on. Because especially when you're trying to accomplish something, we talked about this, how personalities differ. And that's good. That's good. You need different skill sets. But if you have different skill sets, you also have different ways of seeing the world. So you need to be able to allow yourself to 
get through it and struggle. And I see a lot of partnerships and businesses that fail after the first bump. Right. They can't get over the first problem. They can't get over the first disagreement. And it becomes a wedge that cracks and shatters the partnership and just breaks it down. Yeah. And it can be hard. But at the end of the day, I think that's why it's worked so well is that We've had those, and we we experienced some of those really early. <laughs> really early. You know? Really early. And so yeah. it's functioning with somebody. I think the key is, is that you really have to understand and function with someone on a business level, probably on a smaller scale before you scale it up and move big. Because yes. there's nothing that you, you don't want to be involved in a situation where, you know, you have millions and millions and millions of dollars at stake yes. and then have a problem and with somebody. And then have a problem. You yeah. know, there's no easy way out. It's really easy when you have thousands of dollars exactly. first. Exactly. It's a difference. You can, you can always break ways. No, no big deal. And stay friends. And stay friends. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But when it gets bigger, that's not how it works. Life, you know, it's just these are big, big decisions that have life changing yeah. implications. But let's go back. So we've, we've talked about kind of uh, how we work in. Sorry, I want to we've talked about the Boise deal and that was an auction right now. We have more of traditional deals that we have, which which I'll get to real quick. But I, I want to go over to the underwriting of the Super K Mart when this because this was was such a non-traditional asset to underwrite, although I still feel we were very confident in our approach and our underwriting. So our one of our partners in that deal, his name's Reed. And I had met Reed at a association meeting in Southern California. And me and me and Reed saw like mine and got together. But two, it, it reminds me of the partnership. Reed didn't know anything about storage. And two, I don't don't think Reed wanted to. He didn't want to have anything to do with the operation, but he had this bankrupt Super Kmart. So when we began to look at this, and when you had to start to underwrite it, how do you underwrite something that doesn't exist? So now we're talking conversions or developments. How do you go about that? Basically, the conversion is a very interesting thing. And there's so many aspects about the individual construction of those units and that stuff that I'm not really going to talk about because I don't care about that as much. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I just care about the financial stuff. And that one, you know, it really came to you need to understand it's like a new construction. You know, I, I get that there was a building there before, but you have to look at it as a brand new construction and what that does with the market. And so when we were underwriting that one, it, it was a brand new area that we were going to. We spent a lot of time down there. And we also had this partner that AJ mentioned, they were great. They were on great. the ground like crazy. They knew. And th what was important that is that we had local insight that we couldn't provide. And that's one way I think that, that deal really worked out was the partnership that we chose because they, well, they chose us, I guess, is yeah, how that yeah, one worked out. Yeah. But they really knew the area. And and then you mix that with our know of, of the storage industry. It worked out well. But you have to look at it as a brand new building. You have to look at the market saturation. You have to look at what your facility is going to do to the market. And in that one, we were going to flood the market with a certain kind of unit type. And that's climate control. 
the it's the that area does have climate controlled but not in the way that we did there so we flooded that whole market and we had to kind of understand what that was going to do to it and if there was going to be a good adoption rate to it based on what the other facilities are operating at and so there was a lot in that there was a lot of thought gone into marketing there was a lot of thought gone into the growth of the area. There was a lot of thought that went into individual location analysis of what the individual area looks like, you know, what construction of new housing looks like, you know, either right next to it or, you know, a few miles down the road. So there was a lot of factors that went into underwriting that asset. And then, and that's just to, that's just to get the unit mix that you want. That's just to get the revenue side. This is a complexity that I think other real estate assets don't have, because let's say you have 11 different unit types. Well, that that is a completely different supply and demand and different product type. So you're right. You have to analyze the market because and we had this. We had this at one facility. We had a facility that overbuilt a size unit that nobody wanted. And uh, I think that it's important to know that if you mess that up, underwriting no longer matters. I mean, you shot it. You got it wrong, and now you have a bunch of empty units. Well, and what happens then is if then you want to fill it up, you have to start discounting. And then that's going to brutalize your P&L and then you're, you know, up a creek. (laughs) Exactly. So when you get your layout of the unit types, and uh, I I think one one of the things that people do when underwriting that I've noticed is they just take a standard time for fill up and adoption, right? So it's just like three years. Everybody says the same thing. Three years. Do you think that that's good? Do you think you should just say take it through your plan, or how do you how do you go about working that in your finances? Because that matters a lot. That <laughs> oh man, on the on the Reno deal, that was an issue that with one of our partners, I went back and forth quite a bit with. We decided to go with a more conservative route. I knew we would fill up quicker. I think we all knew that, but. It's hard when you are dealing in the financial industry and getting finance people along with it. It's difficult to break them out of the standard. You know, the standard is two to three years. If you think that you can do better than that, then it's kind of tough. They're not going to really care. Yeah. You know, they're going to say, well, that PL doesn't look how I want it. This is a new construction. We don't want to be risky. We want to be conservative. We want to put it out at three years and then we'll finance based on that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, okay, we've talked about this, Philip, but there's another part that we haven't really got, talked about and that is competition. How do you include competition or do you include competition when underwriting? You do include competition. I think that it's silly if you can think, you know, that you're not going to use what everybody else is doing in the market. You have to be aware of everyone else and you have to take that into account to your own numbers. When looking at competition, you know, I think this is interesting for us as we go into markets as well. Not all competition is created equal. And I and I think this is fairly important because I know when when you're underwriting the assets, we know exactly around where our per square footage cost is. And we understand, you know, between our marketing and our fill-up rate 
and then how aggressively we can be to get rates up to, let's say, where we want them. So because we know that, if when we go into a market and we see competition coming in and developing out, when you underwrite it, is are you just simply lowering the per square foot revenue because you know that we're going to be giving concessions and we're going to probably have more bad debt and different things like that? Or how do you how do you implement competition into the underwriting that you do? You have to take it from the step that what you're going to be doing in your marketing and what you think that you can do. When you look at an individual asset, you have to uh, understand market indicators. You have to understand uh, if this facility is offering this certain product, what the difference between the features of that product versus the features that you'll offer, whether that's a discount or a premium on yours. You have to understand if that's, you have to understand where you fall in the market on that. And then you can adjust your prices accordingly. But again, it, it comes back to demand. If the demand is there for a certain unit, sometimes, you know, in, in the underwriting process, make a mistake and price too low or price too high. And then as when you open the asset, you will quickly find out if that worked or not. How much do you have to readjust? I, okay, I think this is another thing. We see, I see a lot of people that are like, oh, you know, I guess here, let me, let me clarify this a little. When we talk underwriting, right? When we talk, if you're developing an asset, when we talk like underwriting and you're looking at a PL, there's a, a perfect example is we had a large storage facility that was built in Meridian, right? And they underwrote the asset. And by underwrite, I mean, they basically just filled in the numbers that they wanted to get investors to hit certain amount of returns that they wanted, right? That's that's really what we see a lot of and what people are doing. When we go in and we underwrite, how often after are you readjusting those numbers and those outlooks? So we come in, we purchase it. Six months later, do you need to readjust those numbers to take in consideration either variables that we didn't see or new competition coming into the market? Does that happen a lot? It happens all the time. Six months would be a very long time. I'd have to feel pretty comfortable that uh, we really hit the nail on the head. When you first open, you're going to be looking, I know sometimes you go daily, but mostly it's week to week. Because you have to get the full cycle of the operations and, and and then from that, you know, you can kind of go out from a month and maybe two. And there's, you know, the, it's a business of different cycles. Yeah, I was about to say, it also depends on if we're in spring or fall or, I mean. Yeah, and it's it's in the spring and fall. That's the annual side of the cycle. But then there's weekly cycles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the weekends are typically more busy than in other parts of the week. So you have to understand all of those, but. Yeah, you're doing it a lot early on when you first acquire or build the asset to see where you're following it at. And, you know, there's there's times that you may hit the nail on the head and and it did exactly what you thought it would do. And if you do that, then good job. When you're dealing with the financing side, so somebody's starting out, they're underwriting their deal or they're underwriting the acquisition of a new storage facility and they get financing based upon their numbers and two months into it, they're like, wow, we were really off. (laughs) 
what would you tell those operators? So often in a bad way? In a bad way. Well, that's tough because typically, I mean, if, if you're operating and it's a completed product, right? In your scenario, you're talking a completed product, not anything else to build. Yeah. Or let's just say it's an acquisition. So you acquire an asset, you underwrite it because you think you're going to be able to get all these great increases and it just doesn't play out, right? You find out there was all these skeletons in the closets that you didn't know about. And then a guy was building down the street and you're kind of in the six months later going, man, we are not hitting our numbers and they're just not sure what to do. Well, it depends how dire the situation is on what my recommendation is. If it's very dire circumstances, you have to look at offloading the asset, cutting the losses, selling it to somebody. I mean, you'll take a hit. Maybe you can sell it for something else that, or an amount that you can recover something on. But that's, that's the most dire of circumstances. Before that, before you go to that level of offloading the asset, you know, you're going to be looking at your business operations. You're going to see if you can get somebody in that can help you run it right. Maybe there's some expenses that you're needlessly putting through. Maybe there's some fluff that, you know, some fluffy services that you're offering that you can cut back on. Maybe it's just a revenue problem. Maybe you just need to raise some rates and stick with that and, you know, target focus on your market. And there's a lot of different things that you can do. And, you know, in this assumption, if you underwrote it wrong and you're in the asset, my assumption would be is that you're not very seasoned in the market. And so you need to find somebody that is to help you. And if that's a you know, professional asset manager, then that's the way that you can go. If, you know, if it's a Bob down the street that you know that's really good at doing it, then hire Bob, you know. So I think in I, I agree that completely, I guess the better question would be, and for anyone looking to get in this industry, and we'll kind of wrap it up with this, and this is where I want to get your two cents. Um, we've been going here, you've, you've been very generous with your time and knowledge, but if you're going into the industry, how do you avoid those things? What, what would you tell somebody when they look at the storage facility, maybe it's their second one, or, or maybe it's the first one, developing or buying, what are the red flags? And when, uh, what are the, the signs that you look for that tell you to either walk the other way or to go all in? Like, what are you looking for? Well, uh, I think that that's actually easy. You're looking for a deal. <laughs> you know, you're looking, if, if you know what the replacement cost for a storage facility is, if you know that the demand is good in the area, um, and if you know what the current market saturation is in the area, and if all of those check off, then it all just comes down to when you afford it. And that's very much simplifying the answer to that because that requires a lot of homework. You have to study the market. You have to study your revenue. You have to study your expenses. Assuming you did all that, you know, then you're going to find a financial partner that can help you close the deal. More often than not, the answer is no. And that is something that for people coming into this industry, they need to understand that, you know, the reason why we've been successful is because in large part, we acquired most of ours. A lot of other people made mistakes, you know. 
And you don't want to see that happen if Joe's, you know, buying this first facility himself. You don't want to see Joe go bankrupt. You need, and I think that that's something that the industry as a whole is on fire right now. And there's a lot of people out there telling people to go into storage, to go into, you know, because it's an easy asset to run. There's a lot more to it than that. And it's just not going to be the simple operation that most people think it is. And, you know, if you get one in, if you happen to be the one person that lives in the one town that it works perfectly for, and you're like, man, the Sam guy's an idiot, that, you know, that you're the exception. Yeah. Because the rule tends to be that you should walk away from most deals, Mm -hmm. especially if it's on market, especially if you don't know what you're doing. You have to be conservative early on. Yeah. Awesome. I couldn't agree with that more. I tell people when they ask what, what, you know, the best thing that I can do when looking to get into storage run on it. And I'm just like underwrite everything because I'm like, you're not going to underwrite a deal and get it. Like, that's just not how it works. And so I, I, I love that advice. That's great. Sam, thanks so much for being on here today. We really appreciate having you on. This was great. <laughs>